I salute you for the title of your podcast. Here's the history of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. The fuck am I talking about? As screaming comes across the sky, it has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. to the last stretch of the book's first section called Beyond the Zero but there's plenty more weirdness in store we pick up with some characters from the seance earlier we learn of the first out of body experience of the medium, Carol Aventier who is being studied at the white visitation because he can move between the realms of the living and dead we learn more about other subjects at the white visitation including a guy who can change his skin color this has been useful in the films of the Herrero revolutionaries made for Operation Blackwing. These rebels, by the way, are termed the Schwarzkommando. We also meet Aventier's lover, Nora Dodson Truck, who has developed a theory called the ideology of the Zero. What is the Zero? We think it's the space beyond death. Folks at the White Visitation seem very interested in this space. Now we get the backstory on Lenny Pogler, another seance participant who is the lover of Peter Sasha, who is Carol Aventier's control in the seance. Got it? Flashback to Germany, pre-war, when Lenny leaves her husband, a rocket scientist named Franz. Franz's obsession with rocket mysticism makes him an easy target of the Nazis, which puts him at loggerheads with his wife, who is a communist sympathizer. Franz was also a student of the madman chemist Laszlo John. Lenny and Peter summon the ghosts of Germany's former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Walter Rathenau, who was killed in 1922 by a right-wing anti-Semitic paramilitary group. Rathenau's ghost warns them to be wary of secular history, which is his right as a ghost after all, and claims that death itself is perfecting its reign. Then flashback or forward to London, 1944, the big Christmas bash at the White Visitation. Pointsman toasts his dead colleagues, and assures himself that their legacies will be preserved in his work on Slothler. He gets high on himself, and then he gets hard, and gets a blowjob in the utility closet. Then to Roger and Jessica, who are taking Jessica's nieces to a Christmas panto, which is a very British thing. It's a Hansel and Gretel play, and the innocence of this version is cast against the Hansel and Gretel routine played out by Katya and the sex slave Godfrey in Clapton Lucero's lair. Roger begins to wonder what will happen to him and to Jessica after the war. The play is briefly interrupted by rockets falling down the street, but the chorus on stage encourages the audience to ignore the reign of doom and death. Now, sing along. Okay, so this is uh, for episode four. So this will be chapters 18 to 21, so basically through the rest of the 
This is the ideology of the zero stuff. This is like something that I feel like I don't understand. Who's there? Is it Nora Dodson? Nora Dodson Truck. So we have a character named Nora Dodson Truck. Who is she, first of all? Uh, She's the lover of Carol Eventier, who was introduced earlier at the seance. Yes. Uh, And Nora has a husband named Stephen Dodson Truck. Sir Stephen. Saint Stephen, right? Or Mm, Sir Stephen? I think it's Sir Stephen. Uh... Oh, fuck, I should you're just you're just on your Jerry Garcia mode, right? Saint now. Stephen with yeah, that's right. Um, so she's cuckolding him with Carol Evantier, and yeah, she had she talks about this thing called the ideology of the zero, yeah. and it's one of those things in this book that I'm just like constantly trying to wrap my head around. Uh, and I think that like my read on it, which is super basic, is that like the zero is just like a a place beyond death. Like in the same way that they talk about conditioning Slothrop beyond the zero, meaning beyond the point where there is uh, an automated response behavior, that the zero is this kind of place beyond obviation, beyond nothingness. I mean, the idea with uh, Pavlov going beyond the zero Mm -hmm. means that you not only uh, decondition a reflex, but you condition a new reflexive reaction, right? right? You sever the tie between the original stimulus and the response so that the response can be evoked without the stimulus. Exactly, which is like essentially what Pointsman is trying to prove with Slothrop. But the beyond the zero stuff, like... Wait, can I stop you there? Yeah. He's trying to prove that there is no causal connection. He he believes that there is a causal connection, but not only that, but he can recondition it so that Slothrop's uh, after he has sex or gets a hard on or whatever, that it can have a different effect so than do, a bomb dropping. Do these allied forces believe that if they harness the power of Slothrop's erections, they can control where the bomb falls or stop them? Or yeah, rock? or just like use him for whatever. Uh, I mean, we <laughs> we find out later in the book what like Slothrop's quote actual purpose is in this scheme. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> scheme. What? Scheme. Yes. Wow, my designs and schemes. So yeah, I mean that is. I don't like. I don't want to get too deep into that because it's kind of a spoiler right. for people who are going section by section. No, no, no. Here's what I think the Beyond the Zero thing is. Okay. I think that the novel in general is concerned with a period of history that was the end of sort of rationality. Right. And. We get the Pavlovian version of Beyond the Zero. We get a more philosophical version of Beyond the Zero. But I think what's really being tracked beyond the zero is like the end of history in a Walter Benjamin sense. Yeah. And the beginning of this sort of chaotic new era of history in which there's no binary, right. no good and evil. There's nothing to latch onto. It's just a- chaos and individual agents acting in their own interest and their own interests serving group interests, but that then sabotage other group interests that would seem to be on the same side of those original group interests. Right. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, but I, I, I think that point is like made and expressed in different ways. And with these characters, like with the stuff at the seance when they're summoning Walter Rattenau, who's like, death is perfecting its reign. Yeah. I mean, it's very literal in the sense, I mean, it's, I guess it's not that literal, but when you're talking about <laughs> fucking ghosts, yeah. uh, but they're saying that like, essentially the world of death is entering the, uh, the living world. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost in like a literal way. Like it reminds me of that Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie Pulse, where it's like uh, ghosts are using the internet to like swap places with living people. Right, right, right. But, you know, the thing that the, the the rockets and everything have in common is that it is like this grand orientation towards death. Right. And it becomes more of a theme in the novel that like characters are almost like romantically or erotically obsessed with death and destruction. And if you think about it within the context of history, it makes sense. I mean, the end of World War 
two was an interest into a new era of history that was death because okay one the atom bomb yeah um the holocaust yeah uh the cold war which caused massacres of people across the globe i think that all of that ties into a sort of you know a hindu philosophy concept which is that there's three eras of history the first is like when everything is good and pure that's like thirty thousand years the second thirty thousand years is when it's like a little in the middle and the last 30,000 years is when everything goes to shit, entropy happens, right. the world ends, and then it loops back again. And, start. and yeah. I think like, that's what Pynchon is kind of saying, is like, this period of history is the beginning of the era of death. And that's even more interesting when butting up against the knowledge that we have that this book isn't about World War II, it's about the countercultural movement. Right. And like how maybe that is also a, an era of death in its own way. And there's also stuff in this in this sort of section two where it's like they talk about the Herrero philosophy of death, which is that they essentially believe that the dead live alongside them and form a single community. So you have this idea that like, whether it's like, you know, ghosts or spirits, but certainly this like idea of death uh, is something that kind of tr exists at a kind of frequency alongside us, but that that frequency is expanding. And the thing about the white visitation that they talk about is how like so many of the experiments are explicitly preoccupied with kind of like contacting the space of death and measuring it in this scientific way. Yeah. It always reminds me like as someone who's interested in, in like psychedelic research, like if you take like a magic mushroom clinical treatment, at the end they give you this like form it's like how much more connected to god do you feel mm -hmm. out of 10 and it's like all these like totally abstract or you know intuitive questions but you're asked to quantify it using like the rigors of scientific rationality which is just absurd right, right? on a scale of one to ten how connected to the infinite are you exactly like literally questions like that like not a joke like yeah, do yeah. you feel uh, more nature connected no somewhat very much you know what i mean it's like how the yeah, fuck yeah. do like how how do i know but i think that like what you're talking about is absolutely right where it's like the end of a sort of enlightenment style rationality uh that's coming to a close or at least is like revealing its own absurdity, right? Uh, but as that revelation is happening, the people who are most invested in that rationality, people like Pointsman, for example, or even Roger Mexico in a different register mm -hmm. are increasingly preoccupied with like holding on to it as it's fading right. away. And in that sort of organization, Slothrop represents the new or, or I kind of think, and like, again, this is kind of tie in when you get to the end of the novel, but I think that Slothrop is like, is the end of something. I don't think he represents anything new necessarily because right. his fate is that where, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but it's like, it suggests the end or a sort of retreat from a mode of existence. The fact that the novel makes attempts to trace Slothrop's history to essentially uh, Puritans who tried to like hold off industrialization to people who became industrialists and hypercapitalists. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that you know Slothrop, if anything, represents the kind of last gasp of this old era in a weird way. Right. He's he's like a hapless embodiment of it. Yeah, exactly. Like I, you know, and when I think about this book or write about it, like I always think of Slothrop as being like a stooge. He is the ultimate like pawn who's just being like pushed around yeah. and doesn't doesn't even know. Uh, similar to when pirates like jerking off and like how do they know my internal desires where it's yeah, like yeah. Slothrop doesn't even know like which decisions he's making are his own or which are being determined by other people right. and that is like as his paranoia grows and grows and grows like yes. that's the thing that he's trying to parse you right. know and that kind of like drives him a little insane yeah and he's on a journey of self-discovery to remember traumatic memories of being experimented on as a baby yeah while sleeping with like thousands of women along the way alright well you brought up 
Nora Dotson Truck's theory of the zero being sort of pragmatically connected to the mission of the white visitation. Yeah. Because all these occult people with occult power sort of like pinching X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> um, are being experimented on because they have the ability to move beyond the zero in a sort of way. Yeah, they have some sort of contact with the world of the dead, right? And Yes, and one of these people is Carol Evantier, yeah. who's a medium yes. who can talk to another medium who's now dead, yes. Peter Saxa. Uh, well, Peter is a control. So right, right. a control is kind of like, as I understand it, is like... Uh, if you're the medium, you're kind of like translating things to me and I'm like recording them or conveying them to people. Right. Gotcha, gotcha. So it is kind of like a weird spiritual relationship. So it's like a it's like a guide. Basically, it's a point man. Yeah. A points man. Exactly. We get a little bit of like an origin story of Amantir in in a way it's like sort of intimated that Dodson, Nora Dodson truck discovered him. Right. And then brought him to the White Visitation? Uh, she's associated with them because her husband works for Pointsman, okay. Stephen Dodson Truck. And then, like, you know, just to zip over some interesting stuff, we get this interesting bit about this British pilot and his partner, Basher, who, like, saw an angel in the sky. Right, right. Um, which, obviously, to me, reads like a UFO type of thing. It's Chinese spy balloon. <laughs> yeah, Chinese spy balloon. <laughs> Angels are... Uh, because they come back on the Riviera, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, the Angels are like, I think whether or not they're meant to stand in for the rockets or something like that. But the uh, angels are a direct reference to the uh, Dunio elegies by Rainer Maria Wilke, the German poet mm -hmm. who wrote like a bunch of long form poems called elegies that are about different angels. But it's actually like the angels represent godliness or like the idea of there being a sort of like transcendental entity or any sort of energy or feeling of the sublime, essentially. Right. Uh, this is trivia, but I feel okay. like it's relevant. Wait, give me it as a question. What? A trivia question. Oh, okay. So when Rainer Maria Wilke <laughs> wrote the Dunio Elegies, uh -huh. where was he living? Dunio. Well, <laughs> he was uh, living... Rome. No, he was living in uh, uh, a castle owned by the Princess Thern von Taxis. Uh -huh. Who, if you're a pinch on head, you'll know uh, the Thern von Taxis family plays an important role in The Crying of Lot 49. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so while we're at the White Visitation, we get a little tour of all the X-Men. Yeah. Aventure's the medium. We get this guy, Ronald Cherry Coke. He's the guy who can touch objects and flash into the mind of the owner. And Ronald Cherry Coke is presumably a descendant of the Reverend Cherry Coke from <laughs> Mason and Dixon. And then we also meet Margaret Quartertone, who can project her voice in, in a strange way or something right, like Right, like Banshee from X-Men. Okay, I think like the, only, the last thing I'll say about this little white visitation sort of tour is that it seems like they're pretty skeptical of Eventier, or like they're like trying to like suss out whether he can or cannot really do this. Right. This isn't really a medium. Right, which will kind of get answered in the next section. Yeah, and it's debated by Roger Mexico and Edwin Treacle. Right. But long story short, I think Pynchon is using this chapter as a way to introduce us to the to these white visitation goons. Yeah, and it's also like the stuff of the white visitation with Nora and Carol is in the next section connected to this sort of uh, Nazi history of mysticism, you know, like fucking Indiana Jones and stuff. Like people know that like the Nazis were into mysticism and the occult and right. blah, 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 blah. Uh, and this chapter is trying to connect that history to the British yeah. history. But specifically in that next section, we kind of get the first hints of like the idea of rocket mysticism and mm -hmm. fanaticism. Uh, and other stuff too. Let's slow down here. So okay, we're talking okay. chapter 19. We meet someone new 
Lenny Pockler or Lenny Pockler. Uh, she she is Peter Sasha's lover, so she was introduced in the seance chapter. Oh, yes. Okay, so we met her briefly in the seance. But this chapter is sort of almost like a little mini novel about her life during the rise of the Nazis after yeah. the fallout of the Weimar Republic. Exactly. And the assassination of Walter Rathenau. Yeah. The sort of leftist Jewish leader of the Weimar Republic. Yeah, who is assassinated by like an anti-Semitic cabal. I thought only cabals were only Semitic. <laughs> You'd know. Not me. I don't know anything about that. Uh, give it another 10 years of friendship and maybe I'll let you into the, the secrets of the cabal. The cabal? Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm in the Catholic cabal, baby. Mm. Uh, but anyways, yeah. They, they, oh, this is the chapter where they flash back and they summon Walter Rathenau, uh, who talks about like death protecting his reign. Yes. And there's also the good line in this where it's like, uh, history is at best a conspiracy, mm-hmm. not always among gentlemen to defraud. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's not a coincidence that that quote comes in the section that's about Marxists in a way, right? I mean, it never says that explicitly, but these are young... German Weimar leftists and he does the classic thing of like oh Weimar Republic was the 60s before the 60s right? yeah uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah well I mean again I think that's a truck and I think it kind of bears itself out historically where it's like you know, in Christopher Ishiwood, because <laughs> in the book, the lady always calls him Mr. Ishiwoo, and I always <laughs> think about it, uh, his name that way, because I've read Christopher Ishiwood, and in fact, I've been to Berlin. Wow. Uh, you want a cookie? And I used to own Cabaret on DVD. <laughs> I mean, for a text that is about the counterculture, meaning the 1960s American counterculture, uh, yeah, Asher, as you say, like it sort of like locates uh, the Weimar period in Germany as also this kind of place, which was all about... Uh, artistic expression and a certain form of like uh, romanticism and eroticism and hedonism. Yeah, these people are hanging out naked in bathhouses and doing drugs. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was a student, I read an essay about like the rates of VD in Weimar, Germany, which (laughs) are just like insane. Um, But yeah, I mean, this idea that this uh, moment of kind of uh, decadence and seeming progressivism contained within it the specter of Nazism is almost like a cliched idea at this point. Like, you know, cabaret literally ends with the camera kind of panning over and in a sort of broken mirror reflecting that there are Nazis sitting in the audience watching this queered up stage which, show. Which ties directly to the seance scene in this text because Peter Sachs, uh, the, this, the medium who dies and later becomes Carol Eventier's sort of guide through the medium practice. Yeah. He's presumably a sort of lefty, right? Yeah, and the the thing with Lenny Pokler and her husband, Franz Pokler, is it's yes. like it's this cultural shift that kind of drives them apart because he's a physicist and the whole sort of uh, cult of the rocket is just emerging at this point yeah. and he becomes obsessed with it. Well, there's an awesome little episode where he's working as like a poster paster right. in Berlin, walking around pasting posters. And as he's doing this in this long sort of dark night, he wanders past a field where like ammunition is abandoned or something like that. And he sees people doing a rocket experiment and he sort of like has that moment of like, ooh, this is what I want to do, right? Yeah, and Franz will become a bigger character uh, later in the book. But yeah, I think the thing is, oh, and he was a student of Laszlo Jamf, yes. who of course did the And one of these London. guys who's in this field doing the rocket experiment will become Peter Montague or something? Kurt Mondoggin. Kurt, Kurt Mondoggin. <laughs> who's also Peter in Montague. V. Who is in the 
and it was also in the Sudwest. Yeah. There's lots of connections going yeah, on. Yeah, so I, I think at this point, Franz is sort of depicted as, again, kind of a stooge character, like someone who is can be so easily absorbed by the Nazi mentality because they're like, hey, you like science and technology? Like, come yeah. work with us and you can explore science and technology. Right. You, can, you can take the world to a, a new era, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But so it, I think in, in this introduction, Franz seems a little stupid, but later in the book, we get a much more developed, nuanced, and uh, desperately sad understanding of yes. him as a character. Well, the Pokler family is quite important to the text in general. Lenny Pokler... Um, like Lenny Riefenstahl. She has this affair with Peter Saxo, who's obviously relevant to the White Visitation, but she also represents this sort of lost generation of Germany that got cast aside and probably forced to leave Germany when the Nazis rose to power. Yeah. Meanwhile, this husband she has, who she really doesn't love, Yeah. he stays behind and becomes a part of the Nazi machine. And the daughter they had together becomes relevant as well yes. in that later stuff you're talking about. Totally. So then where do we end? Oh, we end at the Christmas party. So this is kind of helpful. Uh, this is kind of helpful in the sense that, like, it's kind of hard to know when things are in this book, you know? But here we know it's the, the big Pisces Christmas bash, and right. it's, like, winter 44. I don't think there's anything much interesting to talk okay, about. Okay, yeah. I, I, think I, I think, you know, we should just say that points when, you know, gets a blowjob from a secretary. We already talked about that in the summary, though. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Oh, you, this, the paranoiac city? Oh, yeah. You want to explain the paranoiac city? The city paranoiac. Yes. So the city paranoiac, it's a drunken conversation between Pointsman and Thomas Gwen Hidway. It's this idea that like London itself is an intelligent creature and that part of this intelligence is that all the poor people have been shoveled off to the East End so that they can die in rocket blasts because that part of town is closer to where the rockets are being launched from. But yeah, I mean, I think it goes deeper than that, where it's like this idea of London being an intelligent creature. Like, it reminds me of Alan Moore's From Hell, where they talk about the idea that there is kind of uh, this spooky, grand spiritual architecture that undergirds the entire city of London. Yeah, that's a paranoia. That's paranoid literature. Totally. And the city is like a character. Hey, man. Yeah. My favorite thing about your story was how London was, like, also a character. My favorite thing is how all your characters are, like, settings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the thing with this book is it's, like, character, like individual characters are always just kind of, like, way more so than in real life, I think. Just totally open with, like, whatever crackpot frame they have for understanding the world, you Who know? Who is Thomas Gwynhitty? He's uh, a doctor? Yeah, he's the only other guy who's in that group of seven that has control of the book. Ah. So him and... So he's a Pavlovian Yeah, doctor. behaviorist who's, like... Like in with the Pisces White Visitation crew, and he's like basically one of Pointsman's only friends. And then we end this little section, and we're about to end the part. We end with Roger and Jessica again, which probably shows you that they're quite important to Pynchon textually. They're at a panto. They're actually at Jessica's sister's apartment after a panto. Right, right. And the panto was Hansel and Gretel. Yes. Which has got to be ahistorical, right? Like you... during the war in Britain, they weren't doing any German type shit. Like art. <laughs> I don't, I don't think they were like doing any of that. Uh, you think that like I think they had a, a ban on all German media, right. folk tales, anything. They wouldn't call them like Hank and Gertie or something. <laughs> oh, Hank and Gertie. Oh, Hank. Yeah. They dropped your breadcrumbs. Yeah. Stop. Stop <laughs> snacking on the house that's made out of gingerbread, Hank. Yeah, I think the only thing really important to say here is that Roger has this premonition that Jessica will leave him 
Yes. For her husband, Jeremy Beaver, who yeah. is the war to Roger. And also, I think that there is, when we get to the very end of the book, there's stuff happening in this section that echoes with, like, the very ending of the book, which is that, like, at the panto, bombs start falling, and you have this kind of, like, yes. uh, group on stage who are trying just, like, to get everyone to sing along, to sort yeah. of sing their way through it. Uh Again, reminds me of in Nashville when Haven Hamilton is like, the woman is assassinated. And he's like, oh, okay, let's all just keep singing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and that is something that, yeah, comes into play like literally in the very end of the book. Right. So since we're reaching the end of part one, maybe we should just like tie part one up in a neat bow. Right. So what happened in part one? Well, we learn about the major characters of the book, namely Tyron Slothrop, Ned Pointsman, Captain Blasero, Katya Borgesius, <laughs> Jessica Swanlake. Well, Pirate and Osby aren't really yeah, main yeah, but Roger true. Mexico. Jessica's not even a main character, no, really. No. But Roger is. Uh, Carol Eventier, Peter Sasha, Lenny Pokler um, is the guy who uh, swifts Lucero, the white visitor. Yeah. Gottfried. Gottfried. Um, a bit of Einzian. These uh, are all major players who will do major things later in the text. Gavin Trefoil, yeah. of course. And this, I, I think, like, <laughs> who can change himself to any race he wants to be. Just color. He can't change his race. He can only <laughs> change his skin tone. Well, what is race, man? Oh, true. Well um, said. And I think part of the narrative pleasure of the novel in general is getting past this first section. Yes. And starting to see how these disparate characters are going to weave together. De definitely. And I think one of the things stylistically that the book does that makes it, quote, difficult, is that, like, most books or stories conventionally work in the opposite of this. They set... They do table setting, yeah. which is like they orient you and they put you on a sort of terra firma where you understand the characters, how they relate, what's going on, what might happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The first part of Gravity's Rainbow is almost like intentionally discombobulating, right? So to use a table setting analogy, it's almost like a food fight of ideas and stuff like that just kind of being flung around. Yeah. But the way in which these ideas settle and shape and reform themselves, considering that so much of this section is like about tea Theology is about the notion of cause and effect. It's trying to make you think about the idea of teleology of cause and effect, even from a narratological point of view. Yeah. And if you are confused, but still gamely reading, you can take a breather because like the next section is like way more straight ahead. Saint Stephen with a rose in and out of the garden he goes. Country garden in the wind and the rain. Wherever he goes, the people all complain. Oh my, hello. So this episode, we wanted to talk to someone who could put the weirdness and strangeness of the novel so far its mix of forms its shifting of perspective its general sense of discombobulation in historical and literary context so we spoke to a crazy smart gentleman <laughs> that's what it says on his diploma david cowart is louise fry scudder professor of humanities at the university of south carolina and he's published several books of 20th century literary criticism including two books about thomas pinchon one is thomas pinchon and the dark passages of history which believe it or not i actually own and have read and the other is thomas pinchon's art of illusion which asher owns 
and we've read both of them. So between the two of us, we could cover uh, this guy's two books on Thomas Pynchon. He's also written books about DeLillo, histories of the contemporary novel, a book called Literary Symbiosis, The Reconfigured. It can seem like pretty daunting, brainy grad school stuff, but one of the reasons we love his writing and want to have him on is because David can really talk about Pinchon in a way that's extremely accessible. And if you've ever read Pinchon and if you've ever tried to write about him, uh, you know how difficult it can be to just straight up explain what he is doing and what the action of his books are. I mean, we have difficulty doing it on this podcast, episode to episode. So David was a great guest. We spoke to him on an early Sunday morning. He was so generous with his time and insight. So here's our conversation with Professor David Cowart. So I think we want to start off very macro just by asking you to explain to us, especially for those who don't really know much about this stuff, why Gravity's Rainbow was regarded a classic of postmodern literature and zooming out from that, what exactly is postmodern literature? And then maybe if you felt inclined, you could sort of explain the lineage of postmodern literature, where you see it starting and where Pynchon falls into that tradition. Well, I'll give it a go. Um, my brain becomes increasingly foggy these five years after... Uh my retirement. Gravity's Rainbow, dating from 1973, is a sort of consolidation, I suppose I would say, of Pynchon's leadership position in postmodernity and postmodernism. And perhaps you make the distinction, postmodernity describing a cultural phenomenon, postmodernism, more specifically literary. Pynchon didn't invent it. You could go back to Juno Barnes, or you could go to Nathaniel West, Gertrude Stein. They have all uh, sort of embraced an aesthetic which, to a greater or lesser extent, could be characterized as postmodern. But early on, of course, it is perceived as merely an extension of modernism and the modernist aesthetic. And indeed, many people now, and I shouldn't say now, and I shouldn't say many people, but uh, <laughs> You will still hear arguments to the effect that there's no such thing as postmodernism. It's merely a, a further stage of uh, modernism. If you think about sort of names associated with modernism, especially in the uh, English language tradition, you think of Joyce and Eliot and Wolfe, D.H. Lawrence, E.M. Forster, Ezra Pound, uh, William Butler Yeats, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, I suppose. Uh, influential figures are Darwin, Fraser, Bergson, Vico, Marx, Freud, Jung. And one of the sort of signal uh, departures of the postmodern is to invalidate or deny or subvert all manner of depth models. Uh, the mind becomes uh, language itself, which the moderns strive to make pure. Donner ensemble plus pur au mot de la tribu is the famous phrase, Mallarmé, right, that uh, T.S. Eliot embraced to give a pure, more pure sense to the language of the tribe. Well, the postmoderns, subject to some new developments in theory and in linguistics, see language as something that is ultimately really all surface. 
So language is a gloss on top of things. So that's one of the uh, s- signal differences. And I'm probably going to run into some problems when I say, okay, here's Pynchon doing this. Mm-hmm. But um, the influential figures or the the names we associate with post- the postmodern are, in my view, Borges, Nabokov, Pynchon, of course, Calvino, uh, Echo, Barth, Hawks, Bartholomew, and Don DeLillo. The influential figures are Saussure, the linguist, Wittgenstein, the philosopher, Heisenberg, the physicist, Levi-Strauss, Barth, Derrida, Lacan. In the hands of the moderns, like Joyce and Eliot, myth is invaluable. They were led to discern in myth something like a universal instinctive truth. The postmoderns, by contrast, dismantle myth. And it's sort of the last bastion. It, too, is denied its foundational uh, standing. So it is subverted. It is exposed as a construct within particular cultures so that it's not something that is truly universal. Indeed, the idea of the universal comes under constant attack on the part of the especially postmodern theorists. Yeah. Mm. So the subject is decentered. We no longer have a reality sought in consciousness or in the depths of the unconscious because the subject itself, the sense of who I am, is decentered. There's no stable ego. Quite literally, by the end of Gravity's Rainbow. I do have just a quick follow-up. So you've described all these myths and um, sort of patterns of life that the postmoderns are deconstructing or trying to yeah. destroy or being contrary. What What is left behind and what do they believe in i suppose in re- in re- replacing all these things they're deconstructing well uh damn little <laughs> what you can do is perform the things you want to represent honestly mm-hmm. i don't say represent accurately because with postmodernism comes what's called a crisis of representation but there's, there's the, the one definition, I believe, I think you quoted somewhere where postmodernism is about creating new worlds as opposed exactly. to faithfully representing the consensual reality that we all stumble through. Thank you so much for <laughs> remembering that for me, because that is really central. And we must credit a, a brilliant scholar whom you should try to get to do a podcast as well. Maybe you have already. Brian okay. McHale, the what should we call it? Essential premise of modernism is epistemological. It's about knowing. Mm -hmm. The essential premise of postmodernism is making reality or ontological. The idea that what you want to do is not represent the world that we live in, but to make a world that is self-referential and reflexive. It's Mm -hmm. only about itself. It's not realistic. You're not going to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature, which is the Shakespearean uh, wonderful formulation of a traditional idea of art. Instead, you're going to signal constantly to your reader or your viewer that this enterprise is going to be self-referential. Some people say self-reflexive. I think that's uh, redundant. It's just reflexive. It's about Mm -hmm. itself. The famous visual example is Las Meninas by Velázquez. Mm -hmm which is elaborately arranged so that you occupy the place of the two monarchs who happen to stop by to look at the painting in progress and are seen in a mirror far in the back of the room, while the artist himself 
looks towards them from his canvas. I wanted to ask about the the concept of meta narratives. Let's just talk about Gravity's Rainbow specifically instead of broad sweeps. Um, you know, Pinchon is not sort of grafting a quotidian narrative onto a mythic structure as Joyce does in something like Ulysses. Yes, well, he does. Uh, he does. I mean, yes. okay, well, let, let's talk about that because what, what I see in the book is uh, destabilizing something like a meta narrative, but bringing in things from high culture, from low culture. And I guess what I'm thinking about is that sort of uh, Edward Mendelssohn's idea of the book is an encyclopedia, um, and, and an encyclopedia not only of official history, but of of detritus and of the sort of cast off pieces of culture that kind of coalesce in the book. Um, yeah, the preterite. Exactly. Yes. Um, but you know, you kind of interrupted me to say that it does have that sort of meta narrative. What do you see as the meta narrative? Because what I'm trying to drive at here is, let's put it this way: Asher and I were talking about how, in your first book, you do something that very few people can do, which is provide a very coherent two paragraph summary of Gravity's Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And it's almost a cliche when you read about this book that people will say, "Oh, it's it's action is unsummarizable." It's like, well, no, it is. It is summarizable. So I, I think that there's kind of a criticism that when you get into this maximalist postmodern fiction, that there is no structure, there is no uh, rhyme or reason to it, and that it's merely a reflection of the chaos and discombobulation of the postmodern world. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can kind of help us ground ourselves and our listeners in that discombobulation. You know, where where is the structure? Where is that sort of uh, that meta narrative? My mouth falls open at the sort of. <laughs> Wonderful intelligence of this question. <laughs> um, also, in you know, to be somewhat daunted by it. You know, think about Chaucer and the way that he gives you what you take to be actual people, mm -hmm. but which, in fact, in the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales, are types. Not exactly cliches, but they are the type, the perfect type of the monk, the knight, the lady of Bath, no, uh, the wife of Bath, and so forth. The pardoner, the, of course, Harold. The pardoner, yeah, yeah. Surely this is a real person, but no, <laughs> it's it's a type that it was under discussion or sort of widely recognized by his audience, and so this is the kind of uh, dual recognition that people like Fitzgerald and John Keats recognized as basic to literary art in particular. And so Pynchon, I think brilliantly, manages to perform the chaos, and yet he enables ideas about what it amounts to and how we are imprisoned by our stories and by our um, sort of blinkered perception of reality. How can I talk about the world in such a way, you know, World War II, we all know about that, do some justice to it, and yet also make it embody a dawning recognition of how really different what we take to be reality is. In both V, well, all of his books, I think, but I'm most comfortable in talking about this in connection with V, Lot, Lot 49 and Gravity's Rainbow, each one has a central myth. The personage called V, this female embodiment of an historical moment is the central myth of V. The Tristero, the secret mail system or communication system, is the central myth of the Lot 49. And the rocket and rocket teleology and rocket theology, hmm. rocket uh, epistemology, if you will, is the central myth of Gravity's Rainbow. And what Pynchon does he actually has a has versions of himself in that first novel, V. All the artist figures, including Herbert Stencil, are versions of himself 
taking the world's buzzing, blooming confusion and arranging it as a story. Now, that story is a study in paranoid delusion, Mm -hmm. but the reader participates in putting the pieces together, following the clues, doing just what you're taught to do in classes of literature. You, you know, mark the recurrence, you look for repetition, in repetition you find meaning. And sure enough, here is V turning up in 1890, 1880, again in 1898, in 1899, in 1913, 1943, and between there's 1922. And so you say, ah, I'm beginning to get the picture here. She appears under a different name each time, and each time she's associated with the century's violence. Mm. And you are sort of on Stencil's side as he's putting these pictures together because he eventually finds, and I think Pynchon doesn't doesn't, uh, fudge this, that V is his mother. Mm. Now, at a certain point, the reader realizes that the true moments of true major violence in the 20th century, uh, the Sum Offensive or Hiroshima or uh, Spain during the Civil War, she's not there for those. And eventually it dawns on us that Pynchon is pulling the rug out from under the reader's feet and his own character, Herbert Stencil. Nevertheless, Herbert Stencil has managed to meditate on the character of the 20th century, even though in order to make some sense of it, he has to make a story about it which will not stand up to any absolute standard of veracity. One of the only things I would credit myself with, mm-hmm. um, with regard, you know, in, in saying something original about Pynchon and paranoia, is that I think Pynchon sees science and art as the higher forms of paranoia. Paranoia, everything is sort of arranged around you, and it's sort of focusing on you, and it's meaningful, profoundly meaningful, threatening perhaps. Well, that's exactly what happens in science, in religion, and in art. You tell various stories about what is real. Now, in Gravity's Rainbow, one brilliant aspect of it is that he has two characters, Pointsman, who is a diehard Pavlovian, you may recall me using that phrase, who Mm -hmm. wants, he cannot sort of part company with the idea of a mechanical model of the human mind. Right. The the stone determinacy of every soul is what he wants to figure out. Nicely put. And uh, so he embodies or represents a, call it a Newtonian uh, account of reality, which is physical and which defers and looks for the element of cause and effect. And he's somewhat troubled by, what's it called? The, uh, going out of my head now, there's a phase when the dog keeps responding and it's no longer getting the... Uh, oh, the, is it extermination beyond the zero? Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. And there's a there's another term for it, but, you, but you've got the right phrase there. Mm-hmm. So you've got Pointsman on one side and Roger Mexico on the other. Roger Mexico is a statistician and mathematician, and he works with probability and with uh, statistics. And so Pynchon juxtaposes these two characters and thereby juxtaposes two ways of thinking about physical reality, whether it answers to Newtonian physics or whether it is endlessly uncertain. So when Tyrone Slothrop's uh, erotic adventures turn out to replicate the map of V2 strikes in London, you have something that, of course, puzzles uh, allied intelligence, and, and pretty soon they're they're on to Slothrop. What, is, what does he know that they don't? Uh, how is it that every time he has an erection, there is a V2 rocket coming down? Well, that's a wonderfully imaginative 
uh, dramatization of something that can only be talked about in terms of statistics, and hence the Poisson distribution curve mm-hmm. that Roger Mexico tries unsuccessfully to explain, mm-hmm. the pointsman. So you have the evolution out of a Newtonian physics into, call it Heisenbergian physics. More questions. Oh, these yes. are great. Um, well, think? just staying on the theme of physics and science, I was interested in, you come across entropy as a concept constantly when you're just poking around, looking into explanations of Gravity's rainbow and pinching. And yet you seem to imply or state outright that that's sort of a that was an early critical lens that people looked at pinching with. Yeah. But you think that there's actually a more complicated lens to view pinching with and that entropy is maybe too simple for what he's doing. I was wondering if you could explain that. Well, I was only I sort of deferring to Pynchon's own observations mm-hmm. in his introduction to some obscure volume called Slow Learner. (laughs) And I I salute you for the title of your podcast. Um, And in Slow Learner, in the introduction, I believe is where he famously, he didn't repudiate it. He simply sort of was looking back at his own sort of early uh, achievements or efforts and uh, politely deflecting, I think, the natural desire on the part of his readers and his critics to find a key. Yes. The, the, the subject of entropy is something I find interesting, and this is kind of getting into the politics of the novel, maybe. But mm-hmm. one thing, if I have one criticism of Gravity's Rainbow. No, uh, no. <laughs> it's that I, I feel like it's almost a little nihilistic. And I think that when Pinchon gets into the counterforce idea, the idea of there being a they system that can oppose the totalizing we system, I don't feel like he really believes that that's possible and that the system won't break down. The system will only reconsolidate itself and reappear in a different form of control. So that's where the entropy thing kind of abuts for me. I mean, I I find those counterforce passages later in the book so stirring when they all kind of get together Mm -hmm. and decide to stick it to the man. But I, you know, and and writing as a sort of 60s novelist, I mean, the book was published in 73, but as someone with his at least toe in the counterculture, he, he thinks that those systems will not be able to oppose the master system and that it will not dissolve. Now, I think he gets a little bit more sensitive, maybe even by inherent vice, a little schmaltzy about uh, that that culture. Uh, but I was wondering what you think about that. I mean, when, when we get to the end of the book, do you think there's a genuine sense that the system can break down, that there can be an oppositional force within it? Or will those forces just invariably be reified within the system of control? Oh, my. Um, <laughs> I think always... That probably, and again, I, I Fitzgerald remark when he says, uh, the mark of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in the mind, uh, that everything is useless, and yet one is determined to make it better. Mm-hmm. So the other thing to apply to that mm-hmm. is Gramsci's wonderful apothem, pessimism of the intellect, mm-hmm. optimism of the will. And so I think Pension probably fits into that category. So maybe the answer to your question is, and I, I say this very tentatively, mm-hmm. is that first you sort of go to the, you know, all the way to the end and see that the likelihood of the counterforce really prevailing or making much of a dent in the powers that be is nearly minimal. But you continue to affirm the idea of a counterforce. You do it in novel after novel, and you you fight the fight, which you, you mustn't ever just sort of abandon. 
I don't think this this makes for a nihilistic reading of Gravity's Rainbow because there's enough incredible hilarity to the book. There's enough humanity to the book. It's funny how initially we we thought of Pynchon as a person who, like many postmodernists, produced flat characters. Supposedly, the E.M. Forster's round character was something inimical to the postmodern aesthetic. Mm-hmm. The more one reads Pynchon, the more one becomes fond of and feels like one knows Benny Profane or Tyrone Slothrop or Katya Borgesius or even Captain Bliggero. I think a lot of these thoughts we're talking about, and maybe this is just my personal interest bleeding in, but it almost reminds me of Marx, Marx's formulations around capitalism in that it will eventually destroy itself, but it has to reach a certain pitch mm-hmm. um, and a certain advancement, and that there can still be communist action and communist uh, sabotage mm-hmm. of the capitalist state, but the capitalist state eventually does have to destroy itself, and maybe that's sort of what this counterforce idea is. is acting within that framework. Do you see any bleed over with that? Well, I'd like to see some intimation of the capitalist juggernaut uh, faltering in any <laughs> yeah, of Pynchon's no, novels. And yeah. I'm not sure that I do. And there again, it's a it's a kind of radical honesty on his part. Yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on politics, but I almost view his politics as more anarchic than anything. I mean, that he tends to to privilege the benefits of small contingent relationships. I mean, Mason and Dixon is basically a picaresque through different groups of people who are all kind of living in their own way, and there's no necessary harmony that has emerged through the idea of state and nation to unite mm-hmm. those groups, or mm-hmm. you know, the little gaggle of hippies and in, in vine land or an inherent vice i mean yeah i don't know he he has the the heart of a punk rock singer but the, <laughs> but the blood of a, a protestant uh yeah yeah. Uh, yeah new yorker subscriber i suppose um well i was i want to get to something that feels extremely important to this text that i think we uh sometimes struggle to to explain for our listeners or to codify but you write in in your book that Gravity's Rainbow purports to be a movie itself. Because I believe you make the bold claim that at the end of the novel, we're kind of jumping ahead here for our listeners, that everyone is watching Gravity's Rainbow as a movie when that rocket is dangling at the final Delta T, um, which I think is a pretty radical and interesting suggestion. Well, I think that what metaphorically is transpiring is we, you know, cast our eyes on the page is that we are looking at what is imagined as, or I think, I'm not sure I could you know put my finger on the moment where or phrases where it says you're really watching a movie or this really is a movie. But one of the better, even though it's more or less accidental, one of the better comments about the little uh, square that squares that, uh, right. cha- you know, signal a, a shift in, in uh, yes, like a change. At the end of these are film sprockets. Right. Yes. And of course, the book is replete with cinematic reference, uh, very important uh, references to German cinema. Siegfried Krakauer is hovering over the text in a variety of ways. Well, it seems to me he's almost certainly seen a lot of uh, German silent cinema. That struck me as truly knowledgeable because early on in in writing the first book, I, um, I, my own sort of immersion in German silent cinema was fairly fresh from undergraduate days. And then I read Krakauer and I was reading Pynchon and looking for ways in which 
film seemed to to figure. The language at the end where he says, we are all sitting in the theater and we're clapping our hands saying, you know, fix the projector, which we've all done, mm -hmm. uh, signals that this climactic moment is something we are viewing um, cinematically and uh, unaware that there's going to be um, a reification comparable to what Gerhard von Goehl imagines when his film of the Schwarzkommando turns out to have called them into existence. Right. Well, that's that's you know his uh, egomania as German mm -hmm. film director, but in the same way, I think there's a kind of reification of what we take to be a movie, take to be a fantasy or, or a flight of imagination. Uh, imagine that it's real, that the etiology has been represented for the rocket, but the rocket is certainly metaphorically on its way. I, I just kind of have one more question because you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I'm loving this. <laughs> oh God, me too. But you know, we've talked about Gravity's Rainbow as a postmodern novel, maybe even as a German novel. You write about Pinchon's California novels. And I think the idea of Pinchon as a California writer is so interesting. Like his archives are going uh, to California and not New York. So many of his works are set there. He obviously lived there for a period of time. But I I'm wondering if you think that Gravity's Rainbow could count as a California novel. I mean, California only shows up really at the end. But there's something about the way the book engages with these two great Californian ideas, which are the counterculture and the industry of heavy weapons manufacture, uh, that I think arguably makes Gravity's Rainbow the definitive California novel. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's a way we can kind of uh, fit it into that cycle. Uh, if only we'll just call it a, a spectrum or an element of continuity that he will realize a vision in terms of a nominally California experience in certain novels, and they are oriented to a phase of American promise in the 1960s, which he remains faithful to. Uh, elsewhere, he realizes the prospects of American promise. He realizes the prospects of, of uh, a hippie alternative to the coercive power of capitalism uh, in a different setting or locale. So I don't think you're wrong at all to say uh, to 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 include Gravity's Rainbow as a California novel. It might be a challenge to include Mason and Dixon, which is so <laughs> anchored in its uh, geographical uh, setting. It's a Philly but, novel, as we know. All, all these books, I think, are, are speaking to each other. And the remarkable thing is, I think he he manages, indeed, not to reinvent or not to repeat himself. It's uh, Even in these latter novels, it's it's really worth paying attention and studying and reflecting on his is imagining. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll ever get another pension novel? I've been reflecting on that because again, I, I right now I'm immersed in Cormac McCarthy. Uh, he turns 90 this year and pension just turned. Is it 86, 87? 86, 87. Yeah. May 8th, I believe. Yeah. May 8th was, the, was the birthday, but I could, I was going to mix up because one is, DeLillo is born one year and Pynchon the next, or Pynchon is born one year, DeLillo the next, and Cormac McCarthy a couple of years before that. Interesting just to see a, a phalanx, a, a generation. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Morrison is of that generation as well. John Updike is of that generation. And um, so might there be more? What I was reflecting on in the shower this morning <laughs> was uh, there must be a bunch of stuff that 
you know, you fool with for a while and, and maybe you'll come back to it, mm. as with Hemingway. And I wonder if we really ought to see that stuff. I, I think he has point? one more big historical novel in him. I mean, there's always been rumors that there would be a Civil War novel, uh, but I don't know. I would like to see another Gravity's I, I don't want any of them to stop writing. I want it to keep coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, Professor Coward, thank you so much for your time. So thoughtful. We have so many different guests on this show. And frankly, well, you know, we'll talk to like rocket experts or experts on the Herrero genocide. And, you know, it's mm. it's uh, adjacent to the text, but it's nice to talk to someone who can really get into the nitty gritty of the novel. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to do so uh, better, but uh, you see. have you have prompted such <laughs> uh, insight as I am capable of with excellent questions. Well, we, yeah, we were talking about this earlier. I think you're, I mean, certainly writing for academic presses, you write about pension so clearly, which is a challenge in itself. Cause I mean, I'm a journalist and I've written a couple of articles about pension and it's like, you kind of, you kind of are trying to describe something and it's so easy to kind of rest on obfuscation, you know, yeah, uh, to yeah. be like, this stuff is confusing. Let's just defer to the confusion a bit. Uh, but your ability to really sort of write about him in a clear, intelligent, readable way, I think is such a gift to anyone who's interested in his work. There's the, there's a strange notion that Pynchon is for the underground, not not for academia, and that he can only be explained by sort of other paranoids, you know, people who <laughs> read his books in a little locked room. But I do think that academia and an academic approach, and you take a very clear-eyed academic approach. I wouldn't say it's pretentious or fussy, but I do think there's a, a lot to be offered from an academic approach. So it's it's been wonderful to have you on to get, to round out our 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 guests from that perspective. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I'm so glad that uh, we could have this conversation. Yeah, we'll get to the next section in the next episode, and I think it'll be a fun one. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. It's, I mean, you get to go to the French Riviera and, and party at a casino. Yeah, who wouldn't want to do that? Man. Named after a Nazi war criminal. <laughs> okay, goodbye to you. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen und tschüss. The bloody cups are bloody king, bloody keep it bloody clean, bloody cheats are bloody swine, bloody drugs are bloody lies, the bloody fun and bloody games, the bloody kids are bloody blames, and nowhere to be bloody found anywhere in Chicken Town. Slow Learners is written and produced by Asher Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asher Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Rainer Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.